All right, back in our David series this morning. We are almost done with what has been probably one of my favorite series we've ever done here at New Life. It's been so um, healthy for me, just being kind of put through the ringer of, of God's Word before I ever get up here and proclaim it to you. So it's been a healthy rhythm for me, healthy exercise for me. We're going to wrap it up. Uh, put a bow on it uh, either next week or um, or two weeks from today. Haven't decided yet. But anyway, today we will be um, in 2 Samuel chapter 12. That's where we'll start anyway. So go ahead. If you have a Bible, head there. 2 Samuel chapter 12. We'll start there. We'll actually finish up in, in Psalm uh, 51. And if you were here last week, you know that we, <laughs> we watched David as he just um, walked headlong into disaster. And sin that absolutely uh, shaped uh, his life for the rest of his life. And we learned that complacency in his life as well as our own leads to compromise. And compromise usually leads, leads us to sin. And sin, of course, leads us to pain and destruction in our lives. And as we ended the chapter last week, David seemingly had gotten away with the sin, right? I mean, it, it seemed like all of his cover-up plans actually worked. Uh, the adultery with Bathsheba, the murder, like the whole nine yards, it appeared like David had pulled it off and he was in the clear. But we ended last week with a chilling phrase straight from the mouth of God at the end of chapter 11, and it's this. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Now I wonder, have you ever struggled with a sin in your life that you just, for whatever reason, you can't seem to shake? It's like, man, God gives you victory in all these different areas of your life, man, but there is that one thing that, like, no matter how hard you try, it just seems to keep rearing its ugly head in your life. Anybody else have that experience? Is it just me? Come on, somebody. I, I know that a lot of us, we walk through that in our faith journey. Like whatever it is, it could be a sexual sin, it could be a, a self-control sin, right, with, with food or alcohol or gossip, and man, I just, I, I just have to wonder if that's the case, if that's our experience, oftentimes simply because we do not understand the concept of repentance. Now, repentance is not a word that we use a whole lot in our everyday lives, but... It's all over the pages of Scripture. In fact, that word, that concept, appears over a hundred times in the Scriptures. So this is not something that just pops up once or twice. Man, it's just, it's all over the Scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament alike. And as you guys know, when we see consistent themes throughout Scripture, that's our clue that God is trying to communicate to some, something to us that is extremely important. It's so important, right? Because if we don't get the concept of repentance, we're really never going to experience the life that God has for us. It's so important, in fact, that the Gospel of Mark records uh, Jesus as he kind of bursts onto the scene of history. He starts his earthly ministry. And I want you to listen to the very first words of Jesus as he starts his earthly ministry. This is what he says. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Now, the, the Greek word that Jesus uses there for repentance is metanoeo, which literally means to change one's mind, right? So it's this idea of turning from our sin with a broken heart over our sin and turning to God. 
And so kind of the picture that we get is we're just, we're walking just aimlessly in our life. We're in our sin. We're loving our sin. We're in rebellion towards God. And there just comes this time in our lives where God intersects our life. and just crashes our lives. And we see God for who he really is. And we see God in all of his holiness and all of his goodness and all of his love and all of his mercy. And we are wrecked to the core, right? We see how disgusting our sin really is in light of who God is. And God gives us that, that change of mind that actually leads to a change of direction in our life. And so we begin to head in the opposite direction in our lives. We begin to pursue different things in our lives. We begin to love different things in our lives. We begin to, to, to just like want different things in our life that we didn't want before. So I think a good definition of kind of biblical repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of direction in your life. And as we said last week, everybody sins, right? There's nobody in this room who is sinless. Everybody sins. But it is your response to that sin that will, in many ways, define your life. And in some ways, this makes some people mad, but I think it's true. In some ways, I think the way we respond to our sin is actually an indicator of whether or not we truly know God. German pastor and theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer who died at the hands of the Nazis in World War II, had this to say about what he called cheap grace. And that's just another way of saying faith without repentance. The Christian walk without repentance. Listen to what Bonhoeffer says. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Listen, learning how to repent is critical to our spiritual lives. And David is going to teach us exactly what that looks like this morning. So 2 Samuel, up here there, chapter 12. Just so you know, scholars believe uh, between the end of chapter 11, beginning of chapter 12, about a year has passed, okay? So from the time we left off last week to where we are right now, it's not been like one day or a week. It's been a significant amount of time, about, probably about a year. So let's start at verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. Now let's pause right there. So God sends his prophet Nathan to David to confront him in his sin. Now remember, the last time we saw Nathan and David together, they were on uh, David's back patio, grilling out, watching the big game together. Uh, they're friends. In fact, David would go on to name one of his sons after Nathan. These guys are close. These guys are tight. But God is saying to David through Nathan, you know what, David? Enough is enough. God is, God is pursuing David here. In his love for David, in his kindness towards David, he sends Nathan to confront his friend about his sin. Now, if you're here this morning and you're a believer, so you're here and you're in Christ, I have good news and I have bad news for you. If you're here and you're living in sin, God will never let you go. He will make you miserable. He will pursue you, and He will even exercise discipline in your life. The writer of Hebrews says it this way, The Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son who He receives. Charles Spurgeon, the legendary English uh, preacher, once called God the hound dog of heaven. I love that. Like he's going to hunt you down. If you belong to God, if you are his child, 
He will pursue you relentlessly. Now, that is really bad news if you're trying to get comfortable in your sin this morning. But that is really good news for the health of your soul. You cannot outrun God, friend. You, you, can, you can try. Some of us have done that. I've done that. Some of you are in the middle of your sprint right now. But I'm just going to tell you, spoiler alert, you will fail eventually. As David is about to find out. Let's pick back up in verse 1. He, Nathan, came to him, David, and said to him, he's going to tell him this story. There were, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds. But the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So Nathan calls up his friend David, and he's like, Hey, Dave, I, I heard this story that's going to blow your mind. you got, you got to hear it. Can I come over? David's like, Sure, man. i got some ribs on the grill. Bathsheba's in there whipping up her famous yeast rolls. Like, Come on over. Let's talk, man. So Nathan, Nathan gets there, and he's like, All right, man. This is, this is going to be really hard for you to hear, but you need to know about it, David, because it actually happened in your kingdom. Okay? So there was this, there was this really poor guy. He was so poor, in fact, that all he had in life was this one little baby ewe lamb. Now, ewe lamb is a female baby lamb. i got a picture of one right here. We're going to put it up. Everybody say, aw. Aw. Aw, isn't that cute? All right. So he had one. That's all he had. That one little cute baby ewe lamb. And he raised it with his kids, and it became the family pet. With a lay in his arms, like nibble food off the table. It was like a daughter to him. And it was all he had in the world. But there was, there was this other rich dude. He had tons, thousands of sheep and flocks. And one day, a stranger showed up at his doorstep, and the stranger was hungry. He knew he needed to feed him. But instead of going and getting one of his own thousands and thousands and thousands of sheep to feed him, he snuck around and he stole the poor man's little baby lamb, and he cooked it and fed it to the stranger. Ooh. How does that make you feel? I'm ticked off right now, and I've read it like 14 times this week. I'm, I'm angry. Now, this is a brilliant story for Nathan to tell his buddy. You want to know why? What was David before he became a king? He was a shepherd. He spent most of his life caring for and protecting sheep. Right? You remember the stories of like bears and lions that would come and try to steal one of his sheep, and he would chase them down and kill them? Right? So David has a soft spot for little lambs. How will he respond to this story? Verse 5. Then, then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. David is enraged. He's like, Nathan, you better tell me who this guy is right now. This guy deserves to die. I'm going to make him repay it fourfold. Now note here, David is actually quoting Old Testament law here. The book of Exodus says that if a person steals their neighbor's lamb, they shall repay it fourfold. David knew the scriptures like nobody's business. He knew them. But do you know whose sin he's not worried about? His own. 
See, David didn't see himself in the story. He was so blinded by his own sin. I came across a sad but true statement from a, a 16th century theologian named Joseph Butler. This is what Butler says. Many men seem perfect strangers to their own character. That was David. And if we're being honest, that's probably a lot of us sitting in the room right now. And aren't we like David so often? Now we are, we are far more critical and judgmental of the sins of others while completely excusing our own sin. It just brings to mind the words of Jesus in, in Matthew chapter 7. This will be on the screens for you. Jesus said, why do you see the speck of dust in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log hanging out of your own eye? Get the log out of your eye, and then, and only then, maybe will you be able to see clearly enough to help your brother with the speck in his eye. Sin blinds us to the filth in our own hearts. And David hears this story, and he's rightly enraged. Right? And you can kind of picture David maybe even grabbing his buddy Nathan by the shirt and just kind of shaking him like, Nate, you better tell me who this guy is right now. And maybe Nathan just kind of paused for dramatic effect. Let that question just kind of sit in silence for a minute. And then he looks right at David in the eye and responds in verse 7. He says, Nathan said to David, you are the man. Nathan goes, David, that guy is you. That's you, bro. You're the rich man. Uriah was the poor man. That little baby lamb is Bathsheba. God has given you everything. He took you from being a shepherd and made you the most powerful man in the world. He's given you riches that you could never even have dreamed of. You could have had any woman in your kingdom, but you took the one thing that Uriah had. And then you took his life. That man is you, David. That story is your story. Now just a quick side note here. Nathan is a good friend to David, isn't he? Nathan is the best of friends. Proverbs says that the wounds of a friend can be trusted. Or the wounds of a friend are faithful. I just wonder, how many of you have a friend like this in your life? Right now. Somebody who has permission just to say the really hard stuff that's going to tick you off, but you need to hear. And I wonder how many of you are friends like this to somebody else in your life? Now, I would wager that for the vast majority of us in the room like this, you don't have a friend like this, and you are not a friend like this to someone else. And I think it's because so many of us have bought the lie that our culture has sold us, and the lie goes something like this. Listen, you've probably heard it before. This is going to be familiar to you. If you love someone, you must approve of everything in their life. And if you don't approve of everything in their lives, you're an unloving, narrow-minded, intolerant bigot. And church, I just, I just want to say this one. That is a massive, smelly load of horse manure. It is hot garbage. And here's why. I don't want you to miss this truth. I'm going to put it on the screen for you right now. Love demands truth. Love demands, real love demands truth. Fake love maybe doesn't. Real love demands truth. 
Now look, if you were to see me someday, and I don't know why I would be doing this, but if I were, if I were on a railroad track one day, right, and I had my earbuds in, listening to music, couldn't hear anything, and there was a, there was a train like barreling toward me, about to splatter me, would it be loving or unloving to tell me to get off the stinking track? It's the only loving thing that you could do, right? Now, maybe I would be upset for a moment. Like, man, why are you jerking me off the track? But then I would see it, and I would, I would give you a big hug, which, by the way, if you ever see me on a railroad track, and a train's about to hit me, and you don't say anything, when you get to heaven, I'm going to be waiting on you. <laughs> All right? There's no violence in heaven, but I'm going to wait outside the pearly gates. And we're going to throw hands for a few minutes. All right? So this is, this is the first big truth we see here. Believer number one, write this down. God loves you enough to correct you. He loves you enough to correct you, and we need to be corrected. He loves you too much not to confront you in your sin. So I just wonder, how many of you are here right now, and God is trying to get your attention right now in your life? How many of you are here, and there's just, life feels like it's beating down on you, and there's this unbearable weight? How many of you have sin in your life right now that is leading you on the path of destruction, and God, in His love, is trying to confront you and get your attention? If that's you, believer, embrace the loving discipline of your Father. He is good. Stop running from your heavenly daddy. And when Nathan says those words to David, David, you are that man. Immediately, David is absolutely wrecked to his core. But Nathan is not done yet. He has a message from God to deliver. He continues in his confrontation of his friend. Let's pick up middle verse 7. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. So God says, David, I gave you all of this. I gave you all of this. And if that weren't enough, all you had to do was ask me for more, and I would have been happy to give it to you. Verse 9, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonite. God says, why have you despised me, David? In other words, David, you didn't just sin against Bathsheba. You didn't just sin against Uriah. You have sinned against me. You despise me. You spit in my face. And that's the second big truth that we can't miss here. Number two, sin is always an assault on God. Amen. That's why it's serious. I love this quote from Pastor John Piper. He says, sin is what we do when we are not satisfied in God. Isn't that true? Sin is what we do when we are not satisfied in God. When we sin, we are essentially saying to God, God, you are not enough for me. God, you do not satisfy me. God, I want my way. I despise your ways. I despise your rules in my life. God, I know better. Leave me alone. And that is why sin is so dangerous. It is always an assault on God and His goodness and His sufficiency in our lives. And now come the consequences for David's sin, beginning in verse 10. Now, therefore, 
The sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son, for you did it in secret, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. Nathan is laying out the consequences of David's sin. Now, this is a theme that we've seen throughout 1st and 2nd Samuel. So this is the third truth that I need to highlight for you this morning. Number three, sin comes with consequences. Now, see, so often, man, we, we want to sin, but we don't want the consequences that come with sin. And so we want to overstep sexual boundaries that God has put in place for our good. Or we want to overstep boundaries for well, like food or drink. But listen, there are consequences that come with our sexual sin. There are consequences that come with our gluttony, with our drunkenness. Whether we want to gossip or lie or cut corners in school or at work. All of those things come with consequences. You've heard it said. You can choose your sin, but you cannot choose your consequences. And isn't that so true? And by the way, all of these consequences actually come to pass in David's life. Just read the rest of the book. The sword never left his house. The son that was conceived in adultery with Bathsheba, he died as an infant. Another one of his sons goes on and rapes one of his daughters. Civil war breaks out against David from one of his own sons. Solomon ends up being a womanizer. I wonder where he learned that from. Watching his old man, right? The kingdom eventually crumbles. And the people of God are enslaved by evil pagan kingdoms. Sin comes with consequences. Friend, this is a warning to us this morning. We would be wise to heed it. As Nathan confronts David with his sin, David's heart is ripped open. And he is absolutely crushed by the weight of his own sin. Look at verse 13. And David said to Nathan, I, I have sinned against the Lord. Now, now watch this. As soon as David stops running, as soon as David stops trying to hide his sin, as soon as he stops trying to justify his sin, as soon as his heart breaks over his sin, watch what happens. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Did you see that? As soon as David stops playing games, as soon as David owns his own sin, as soon as his heart is ripped open over his own sin, the floodgates of God's mercy opens up and rains down on David. And David says to David, David, son, I have taken away your sin. I've taken away your sin. You're going to live. You're forgiven. Now, many scholars believe that that very night, David sat down and he wrote Psalm 51. So go ahead and turn over to Psalm 51. That's where we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning. And I want to give you the anatomy of true repentance as we watch David's heart bleed true repentance in this psalm. Psalm 51, starting in verse 1. David writes, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. 
So here, here's the first mark of true repentance. Number one, write this down. True repentance runs to God for mercy. Notice, David's not like, ah, you busted me, God. You finally called me, so why don't you just give me a list of stuff i got to do to repay you, to, to kind of work off my sin. No. True repentance realizes that our only hope is the mercy of God. His prayer is, God, you are my only hope. God, I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me because of your great name. Not because of anything that I've done or, or will do. Like, I cannot earn it. God, because of your great name, have mercy on me, a sinner. Verse 2. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Now notice, David is no longer minimizing his sin. He's no longer justifying his sin. He's, he's owning it and he's confessing it. He's confessing it to God and he's confessing it to people. He is done playing the cover-up game. And that's the second mark of true repentance. Number two, true repentance honestly confesses sin. You own it. You just own it. There's no more like, oh, I just made a mistake. Uh, it wasn't really that big of a deal. Like, I know people that do way more. Like, no, none of that. God, I am sin sick. And I am not going to hide it anymore, God. Here is all of my sin and all of its gory filth and disgustingness, God. I need you to heal me. This is confession. This is open. This is honest. This is transparency before the Lord. Verse 4, David says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. He's saying, listen, God, I get it now. My sin wasn't just against Uriah. My sin wasn't just against Bathsheba. Ultimately, the greatest sins, God, my sin was against you. I get it now. My sin was an assault on you, God. He's confessing. He's pouring out his heart. Verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now this runs counter to what our culture teaches us, certainly. But this is a truth that is deeply embedded throughout the scriptures. See, our, our culture says people are basically good. Right? So there are a few bad apples sprinkled in there, guys like Hitler, guys like Nick Saban. But like for the most part, human nature is actually really good. So we come, babies come out with a blank slate. They actually learn bad things and they learn to sin from society around them. First of all, if you ever had kids, you know that's a big old fat lie, right? I don't have to teach my kids how to lie. I don't have to have a class with my kids and teach them how to cheat or to hurt each other. They came out of the womb doing that stuff, right? Sometimes they take after their mom, you know, just saying. <laughs> David is, I'll pay for that later. David is saying, I was born in sin. Like, this is who I am. This is who I am. The core of who I am. I'm a sinner apart from God. Apart from you, I have no hope. Verse 6, behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. He's saying repentance is a heart matter. True repentance is not action-based, it's heart-based. We'll, we'll see more of that in just a minute. Verse 7. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. You say, man, what, what's hyssop? Good question. I had to look it up this week, too. Hyssop is this, this flower. It's a cluster flower. 
these tiny, this is actually kind of pretty, little white flowers that are in a cluster. And it was used to sprinkle the blood of a sacrifice. So if you remember back in the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, right, when, when God told his people to take the blood of a lamb and to paint it on their doorpost so that the angel of death would pass over, we call that Passover, right? They were to do that with hyssop. Now, so David knows what this is about. This is fascinating to me. David is literally saying, God, I know I need a sacrifice to cleanse me from my sin. David is literally saying, God, I know I need a Savior. I know I can't do this myself. I need somebody to come and bleed to cover my sin. And that's the third mark of true repentance. True repentance recognizes the need for a Savior. There is no forgiveness without sacrifice. There is no redemption without a Savior. And David finally realizes this. He goes, man, I, I need a Savior. I need the blood of a sacrifice to, to blot out my sin. To cleanse me of my sin because I finally see how wicked it is in the sight of God. See, for us in 2019, we, we look back in time to Jesus as our Savior, as our ultimate sacrifice. For David, he looked ahead in time to Jesus as his Savior and as his ultimate sacrifice. Verse 8, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. David is saying, God, the only one who can restore my brokenness, the only one who can give me joy again in my life is you. I am done, I am done, I am done trying to fix myself. No more, just got to try harder, I can do better tomorrow, I just got to muster up a little bit more willpower and I won't do that sin again, right? See, true repentance, this is mark number four, true repentance seeks healing from the right source. Friend, let me, let, let me say this clearly, because I think we're, a lot of us are confused on this as well, because we also get this lie from culture. So I want to say this clearly, and I want you to hear this clearly. No matter who you are, no matter where you come from, no matter how good or religious you think you are, you cannot fix yourself. Let me say that again. You cannot fix yourself. You will never fix yourself. If you could have by now, you already would have, Right? You can't. You're incapable of it. Your healing, the restoration of your joy, will only ever be found in God. Verse 9. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. David is begging for God's presence in his life now. He's done running. Verse 12. Restore me to the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness. Now this is a specific reference to Uriah's murder. I think there's even a le lesson for us here. Because a lot of us, right, we, we pray really general prayers. God forgive me of my sin. General David is getting specific here, saying, God, forgive me of these specific sins. <clears throat> oh, God, oh, God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Oh, Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. David is saying, God, your forgiveness will cause me to praise you. 
Your forgiveness will, will cause me to declare your goodness to others. And church, this is the only appropriate response to being forgiven of our sins, isn't it? To live a life of worship to our great and generous and merciful and good God. So the fifth and final mark of true repentance that we learn from David here, number five, true repentance leads to worship. See, people think about repentance as like this big drag of, oh, I've got to go in, God's going to beat me up, and it's going to be this pure misery thing. Listen, friend, when you repent, as David repented in Psalm 51, and you taste of God's forgiveness and His goodness and His mercy and His love, that always overflows into worship in our lives. Like you just can't help it when you actually realize how disgusting your sin is and how much God has forgiven you of. It automatically leads your heart to worship. You just can't help it. Verse 16, listen, this is important. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. David's talking about religious stuff here. He's saying God doesn't want that stuff. Verse 17, the sacrifices of God are, listen, listen, a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. David is saying, God, I've, I've got nothing. I've got nothing for you. I bring nothing to the table. You don't want my religion. You're not interested in me going through the motions of being a churchy person or whatever. You're not interested in my behavior modification. God, you want a, you want a broken heart. You're after my heart. David's like, I get it now. I finally get it. I, I need a new heart. Because mine is irreparably broken, God, and you are the only one who can give me a new heart. You don't want my religion. You don't care about my religion. You want me. You want all of me. You want my heart. And David finally, after all of this time, finally gets it. And it changed his life forever. As we close this morning, I want to invite you just to bow your heads with me for a second. As we wrap up our time together this morning, something that I, I want you to know before you leave is that God wants to heal you. Like God wants to heal. Like that's his heart's desire is to heal you. But our God is not this distant God and he's, he's really far away and he's a, he like wants us to come and just like grovel at his feet. Like I don't really want to forgive him but I have to think begging him I'm going to forgive That's not God. He wants to forgive you. He wants to embrace you. He wants to love you. He wants to cleanse you. The wounds that you're carrying around this morning, like a big sack of rocks on your back that are just weighing you down, that sin that you buried, those skeletons in your closet, that, man, that junk that is eating at you, it's eating you inside, and nobody knows about it. God is aware of all of it. So listen, friend, don't make the mistake of leaving here this morning full of guilt and shame. God is a loving Father. He's a loving Father who is willing, who is waiting to forgive you. 
waiting to cleanse you and wash you and restore you as his cherished son or daughter. He wants you to live in joy and freedom. But friend, understand this. We only get that as we confess. And as we repent and our heart is torn over our sin. And we turn from the filth of our sin to the goodness and the forgiveness and the love of our great and merciful God. Will you do that this morning? Father, you are so good. Father, your, your mercy is so great. There's nothing we could ever do to get outside of the range of your love and your mercy. Your word says that your mercy is new every day. It's there for the taking. But we've got to reach out. We have to cling to you and turn from our sin and turn to you, God. Help us to see the disgustingness the severity of our own sin. Not other people's sin. So often we're worried about everybody else's sin except our own. And that is sick. God, help us to see our own sin. Help us to see it clearly. Help us to see it for what it is. As disgusting as an assault on you, God. Teach us to hate it. Like you hate it. Give us a distaste for our own sin, God. And teach us to be a repentant people, God. Would you break our hearts? Would you rip our hearts open over our own sin so that you could begin to heal our hearts, God? Would you heal us? God, restore us. God, make us, make us dangerous people in your kingdom. It's in the matchless name of your Son, Jesus, we ask and we pray. Amen. Church will stand and sing.